Well, how many of you are on Facebook? Would you raise your hand? A lot of people in the room on Facebook, or you stalk your wife's Facebook like I used to do, and now I'm a late adapter and have recently gotten onto Facebook. And I saw this week something going on that said, you should be as excited about church as about the Super Bowl, so when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. So if you see me kind of doing one of these numbers a time or two during the message, you'll know why. But today is the 50th Super Bowl, pitting uh, the oldest starting quarterback in the history of the Super Bowl, Peyton Manning, 39 years old, against the young buck, Cam Newton, and the Carolina Panthers. Cam, the, the author of the dab, the dance move that's moving quickly across America and beyond. And it's kind of uh, pitting generation versus generation, isn't it? And being an older guy, I'm rooting for the older guy. I think that's it. But every, every generation is a little different. Each, e, e, this week, we had uh, highlighted the Iowa caucuses. And uh, you saw the millennials uh, responding a little differently than the baby, baby boomers. Or maybe you're in Generation X. Different kinds of generations out there, aren't there? The sociologists try to categorize us by putting us into generations. Maybe you're a part of the Pepsi generation. Remember that one? I'm a member of the sandwich generation. Not a quarter pounder with cheese or Big Mac, but this is, a, I have 20-something kids and older parents, and the challenges of both of those generations are, are challenging to us. And both my kids are in their early 20s. They, they work full-time. They live on their own independently. Uh, they're both engaged to be married, yet they still require a fair amount of support and encouragement from mom and dad along the way. My parents are getting up in age. My mom's in her late 70s. My dad, a couple months ago, turned four score. He's 80 years old now, and life is a lot harder for him than it used to be. Uh, after a series of conversations, my parents, a few months ago, finally agreed to leave their home and move into a condo and make it a little simpler. They lived in the same home for 45 years. And so you can imagine the amount of, uh, of stuff that you accumulate in 45 years, right? It's a, it's a lot. So we spent uh, several weeks, a couple of months, helping them pare down, getting rid of things and selling things and giving things away and just taking stuff to Goodwill and taking stuff to the dump. And it still was a challenge. When moving day came, we knew it would be overwhelming for us, and so we hired a moving company, and we hired two men and a truck, and uh, we actually needed three or four men in a truck that day, but uh, a couple guys showed up, and uh, they were prepared. You know, we, we uh, big dude walks out of the truck, and this one guy, he's like 6'2", 240, full face beard, all tattooed up, and his name was Mike. And I thought, man, I'm going to make friends with Mike this day, and I want to be on his good side. So we made sure he had plenty of water for breaks and found out what, what do you like to eat for lunch and provided a nice lunch for him. And you know, this guy was a hoss, man. And my dad had a lot of heavy stuff. He's got like a 1,200-square-foot a garage that he built attached to the house. We would tell people, when you come to the house, just look for the garage, and there happens to be a house attached to it. And uh, he had all kinds of you know, antique motors and boats and heavy tools and big filing cabinets that Mike would just pick up the filing cabinet, something I could hardly move. He'd throw it on his back and put it in the truck. And this guy was a monster, you know. But about halfway during the day, Mike's moving some things. He's in the garage. He looks down. He sees a piece of paper on the floor. He picks it up. And Mike, the mover, says, uh, Life Bridge Church. 
And then he said, that's the church I go to. And my 80-year-old dad, just a few feet away, says to him, well, that's the church I go to, too. In fact, I helped to start it a couple of years ago. And these two guys became buds instantly, you know. Mike talked about how he wasn't really much of a churchgoer. He just recently started attending with his girlfriend, but he liked the pastor, and the messages made sense to him. And, and they didn't talk long about it, but, but you could tell something happened in that moment. Well, that next Sunday at their church, my dad likes to hang out at the coffee and donut area in the church lobby. Donuts more than coffee, I think. And he saw Mike there at church. They talked again a little bit more. And then at the end of the summer, the church, they usually have three weekend services. They had one celebration service at the local community center, brought everybody together. And they had a thousand people come for that one service to celebrate the end of the summer. And about 30 people committed their lives to Christ and were baptized that day. And Mike was one of those guys. Mike found his way back to God. Mike the mover, the 6'2", 240-pound, burly man. What does it take for a tough, independent, macho guy like Mike to recognize his need for Christ and then be humble enough to say, Jesus, I want you to lead my life and then plunge his past in baptism? I mean, that's what we're talking about around here these days. We're in a series called Finding Your Way Back to God, and we've been taking a look at the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, coupled with a book written by Dave and John Ferguson called Finding Your Way Back to God. The premise is that when people come back to God, they usually experience a series of awakenings or, or five alarm clocks that go off in our lives. And, and the first awakening or that first alarm clock is one of longing, and we think to ourselves, there's just got to be something more. Bruce Springsteen wrote in a song, everybody's got a hungry heart. And the son in the story told by Jesus in Luke 15 was seeking more. He left home. He, he grabbed his inheritance early and he started the party. He thought that his hungry heart could be fulfilled in a different way. So what's he do? He drives fast, he lives fast, every day is a different party, every night's a different woman. And when the money runs out, so does everybody else. He's been used and abused, he, he ends up broke, he's hungry, he's familyless, he's penniless. He ends up in the middle of a famine. His plan, his longing for more, wasn't working out too well. And that often leads to the next awakening or that next alarm clock that we talked about last week called regret. Regret is when we wish we could start over. We want a do-over when it comes to life. If you're a golfer, you want another mulligan or two. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a banquet in Dallas, Texas, at a church where the lead pastor is a man by the name of Barry Cameron. You may remember him. He's been here a couple of different times teaching on stewardship and finances. And at this banquet, Barry was talking about having some personal regrets in his own financial world over time and wish he could have a do-over. And he said, anybody in the room relate to that? About everybody in the room had their hands in the air. Everybody's had some regrets. And if we're honest, there have been times or seasons in life when you wish you could have a new beginning, a chance to start over. And we get trapped in these two longings, trapped in the sorry cycle. We long for more, then we mess it up and we have some regrets and we go back and forth between longing for more and regretting what we did. You think, if only I could have all that money back that I spent on lottery tickets, man, I'd be, I'd be farther ahead financially. Or Maybe you had some challenges at the mall by swiping that little plastic card too often. 
Maybe the local bar has profited far too much from you and alcohol has your number. Maybe it's been eating problems or sexual problems or achievement issues. And we can get caught between this aspiration and disappointment cycle. Most of us have taken a spin or two or a hundred on the sorry cycle. The answer isn't try harder. There's a third awakening or a, a third alarm clock that helps move people. People like Mike the Mover or people like you and me toward God. It's an awakening to help. An awakening to help. That's when you say, I can't do this on my own. Why is this so hard? Perhaps it's because most of our lives it's been drilled into us. You can do anything you want to do, but you can't. You remember what the number one step in the 12 steps of AA is? Admit that you're powerless. We can't do it on our own. Friends, bottom line is that we need God for his strength and his power. In Luke 15, in the New Testament of the Bible, Jesus told about a son who took decades of wealth and he blew it all in a matter of months in wild living. He, he went to a distant land until he was broke and broken. There was a famine in that land. And in those days, there were no organizations out there to help with famine. There was no Compassion International to help meet people's needs. When famine came, lawlessness increased. It was a bad scene. There was no communication around. No cell phones to send out a quick text and say, hey, Dad, I really blew it. Can you come, come get me? The other day, I was sitting down to study, prepare for this message. And, and just as I started getting on a roll, I received a call from my wife. And Shelly said that my daughter had locked herself out of her car. And, and her, her key, for some reason, it wouldn't unlock the car door. And her cell phone was on the inside. And... and since I was the only one with an extra spare key, could I come help? And my daughter lives a couple towns away, and I hate to admit this, but the first reaction was to think, how come these things never happen at a convenient time? And then I thought, doesn't she know I'm trying to study for this message about the father that helps out his child when problems in life become too difficult? <laughs> it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Now, the other side of me kicked in fairly quickly, and I was able to talk with Elena, my daughter, and find out where she was and start heading out to help. About five minutes later, she called me, and she had solved the problem, and all was well again. I went back to studying about the loving father. <laughs> and when we hung up, she sent me this text and said, Thank you, Dad. Even though you didn't have to come over, I sure appreciate your willingness to help. I love you. <laughs> yeah, so... I had kind of mixed, mixed emotions reading that message, you know. In New Testament times, there was no instant communication. Luke 15 describes the circumstances a bit more in verse 17. says about the son, when he came to his senses. I mean, the son was a mess. He's broke. He's homeless and helpless and hungover and hungry. He says to himself, I, I got to go home. I just got to go home. Consequences or no consequences. He was beginning that awakening to help, realizing that doing life on your own and then deciding to return back home was a very difficult thing to do in their culture. Christian leader and author John Ortberg talked about the first century, and he made a helpful observation. In the first century, if a Jewish boy takes his inheritance 
and squanders it among the Gentiles, and, and that boy dares to come home, there would be a ceremony indicating that the kid is cut off from the village. He's cut off from his family as well. The Jewish boy knows what's waiting for him. If he squanders his inheritance among the Gentiles and dares to come home, the entire community gathers at the edge of the community, the edge of the town where the boy comes home, and they would take pots like this, clay pots, and the pot was a symbol of their life. And, and they'd say, you have broken trust in our community. You have broken trust with your family. You have broken trust with your dad. And then they'd take the pot and just throw it to the ground. It'd break into hundreds of pieces. And then they would add, you're dead to us now. You've broken your father's heart. You have broken relationship with your family, and you're dead to us. So let this be a symbol of your brokenness. These are the broken pieces of your life. It's not whole. You're not welcome, and you are now cut off. And the Hebrew word for the ceremony was kezazah. Kezazah, which means the cutting off. And some of us, we, we know the brokenness and Shame of a moment like this. This boy in Luke 15, he was in a distant land. He's going through loss and famine, and he knew what was waiting for him when he came home. And after enduring a great famine, he finally said to himself, I need help, I can't do this on my own. Even this, even this is better than dying in a distant land. So what did he do? He, he started heading for home. He started preparing his speech, embracing himself for what was to come, the cutting off. But there was something he wasn't counting on, though. Outside of the village, every day, a father watched for his son. Hope against hope that his son would come home. One day in the distance, he sees a walk that he recognizes. He remembers that walk. He saw those steps taken from the time he was a youngster. Maybe didn't have quite the spring in his step, but he recognized that walk just over the horizon. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son. Of all the things that would be most surprising here in the first century, this would be the one that would be most surprising. Back then, a Middle Eastern man never ran in public. A father was a great patriarch. He wore his robes. He was a man of dignity. He, this was just something that wasn't done. It's not a big deal in America, but a Middle Eastern man didn't do this. Aristotle once said, great men never run in public. But this dad, this father in this story was different. He ran. Why? He can't stop thinking about his broken boy. There's nothing he could ever do to make him stop loving him. Nothing. And the father thought, if the kezazah, the, if the community gets there first, that might break his heart, break his spirit. It might crush him forever. But I'll get there first. And when the, the, the boy is a long way off, the father sees him in a distance, and he runs. He throws his arms around him. He hugs him. He welcomes him. He kisses him and says, you are home. He doesn't care about the rules or who's watching. He, he's no ordinary father. This isn't really the parable of the prodigal son, is it? It's really the parable of the father who runs. 
Whatever distant country you've been to, whatever, whenever you take that first step of humility and you turn toward the Father, the moment you do that, he runs to you. Someone said that this is the only time in the Bible where God is in a hurry. He's in a hurry here to forgive. When we recognize that we need help, that we can't do this on our own, our God is running to us. And friends, help has a name. His name is Jesus. This is what God was doing in Jesus. Jesus was God running to his broken child, running to me and to you. The boy starts into his rehearsed speech. The, the father shuts him up, throws his arms around him, and he embraces him, says, there will be no kezazah. Brokenness will not get the last word in this family. There will be dancing. There will be a party. My lost son is found. Let me ask you, have you been in a far-off country spiritually speaking in your life recently? Whether you made a commitment to Christ a while ago or maybe that's something that you've been contemplating, been making some poor choices, stolen something, covered something up, slept around, ruined a relationship? Are you holding a grudge? Are you in a place now that's far from God? You can come home. Sometimes people come to church for a long time, but, but they lead a secret life on the inside, and they feel kind of trapped, and they want people to think well of them, and nobody knows. But you can come home too. Uh, take a look at Karen and Brooke's story as they have come home to the Father as well. Take a look on the screen here. I'm Karen, and this is my daughter, Brooke. And about a year and a half ago, we started attending River Glen after... Um, Brooke's eighth grade year last year was kind of a tough year for her. She started having some problems with her group of friends and they started bullying her. Um, one of the girls, she was my best friend for almost 10 years, so it was really hard for me just to see her being so mean to me and starting to lose her as a friend. I just thought it would blow over, but um, I feel like with social media now, there's really no escape from bullying because even after she was home, um, she would be getting text messages from these girls and they would be posting mean things about her. And this continued on for several months. And um, I, I wasn't sure how to handle it. Um, I knew that God was the answer, but I didn't know how. I wasn't really all that close with God, and I always told people, yeah, I believe in God, of course, but I really didn't know what it was that I believed in. Me and my mom, we went to church, but not very often, maybe like once every month. I wasn't really getting much out of it at the time. Um, I also went to a youth group, but I wasn't really interested in that either. And then, like when all this was happening, one day my mom just said, hey, do you want to try this new church? I think it might be good for us just to get away from everything. And that turned out to be one of like the best decisions we ever made. I had been considering trying a new church for several months prior to all of this, but I just never got up the nerve to actually go. I still don't know what made me choose River Glen. I didn't know anybody at River Glen. It was just on my mind to give it a try. So I just, I feel like God knew that this was where we needed to be. Um, one of the first Sundays that we attended River Glen, um, 
It was about asking for a miracle and they handed out these little gift boxes and asked us to write down a miracle to ask that we wanted to ask God for. And uh, we decided, we both asked for the same thing, which was to restore the relationship with her best friend. And I think sometimes God just knows that what you ask for isn't what you really need at that time. And he didn't restore that relationship for her right away, but um, he gave her, he had so much more in mind for her at that time. He gave her a close relationship with him and countless new friendships with people who shared her faith and who I know will be lifelong friends for her. He placed several mentors and amazing youth leaders in her life and gave her a safe place where she can always come and just be herself. And he also gave her the strength to begin sharing her faith with others. I still remember the first night that I picked her up from Edge. She had this big smile on her face, a smile that I hadn't seen for a long time. Um, and really, that smile hasn't left her face since that day. I know that God put me through this hard time so that he could bring me to him. One of my favorite verses is, there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning because it's so true and gives me hope that whatever I go through, God is always there for me and will bring me out of this sadness into something that will bring me so much joy. We reflect from time to time on the day that we asked for the miracle. And if I could go back to that day, I would ask for exactly what God gave her. He gave her so much more than what I thought was possible. God really rescued her and um, changed the direction that her life was headed in. And to me, there could be nothing more peaceful than knowing that God has a hold of your child's heart. I find peace in knowing that whatever decision she makes, she will always have God in mind first. Yeah, in May of last year, we were both baptized at River Glen. I decided because I wanted to show that Jesus is my savior and God just changed me into a whole new person and took the old me and I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's just new and I know I have him in my life always. Yeah, it's a great story. Thank you, Karen and Brooke, for sharing your story. They've come home to the Father through Christ. They found a home. Maybe you've been in a distant country for too long. You've been looking for meaning and purpose, and you just kind of ended up with regrets, and it doesn't have to stay that way. You, you can come home again. That word home is probably another, another word in, in our language quite like it. It can bring to, to mind all kinds of heartwarming thoughts and phrases. You know, let's go home or welcome home. There's no place like home. Just wait till your father gets home. That one, maybe not so much. But if we didn't grow up in a healthy, loving home, the pain that the word home conjures up reflects longing for what we didn't have growing up. It doesn't have to stay that way. I went to see a movie the other day called The, the Finest Hours. It's a story where the Coast Guard went on a rescue mission off the coast of Massachusetts in the wintertime in the early 1950s. And, and near the end of the movie, the, while on that rescue mission, Ben Weber, the young captain of the boat, was, was searching for some inspirational words to the men on his boat, on that rescue boat, and he was struggling to connect with them. But when he turned to them and he said, men, we are heading home. We're going home. There was an audible cheer from those men in that boat, and, and they were all on the same page, heading home. Now, most of us eventually long for something more than the here and now. We have regrets over things that happened in the past. And when we turn another direction, it's called repentance. 
Theologian Dallas Willard once said, repent means to reconsider and reconfigure our strategy for living. When we start that reconfiguration, that's when we start asking for help. Why? Because if we're honest, we can't do it on our own. Help has a name. His name is Jesus. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, humanly, there are limits. I'm not God. There are loads that I can't lift. There's an amount of work I can't do. There's an amount of hours I can't sustain. There's stress I can't take. There's an amount of hurt I can't absorb. There's a line between some problems I can solve and some, some that I can't. There are questions I don't have answers to. There are people I can't fix. There are situations I can't change. There's pain I can't endure. There's heartbreak and setback and upsets that I can't handle. You can't change another person. You can't change the planet overnight. We can't even change ourselves most of the time. And sooner or later, we're going to need to realize our need for help. A couple months ago, Billy Graham turned 97 years old. And his name is well known throughout the world, really. Back in 1940, just as many people knew the name Chuck Templeton as they knew the name Billy Graham. Templeton was a friend and preaching associate with Billy Graham. He started an international Christian youth organization. He was a pastor of a large church in Toronto, Canada. And Chuck Templeton came to a point in his life where his doubts got the better of him, and, and that doubt turned into disbelief. He found himself an agnostic and re rejected his Christian faith. He even one time said, I feel sorry for Billy Graham. He committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. Well, Templeton resigned from the ministry, and he wrote a critique of the Christian faith entitled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. At the age of 83, a few years before he died, Templeton was interviewed about his life and, and his spirituality. And the interviewer asked him about Jesus, and he was surprised at the response. Templeton said this, he was the, the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him, he said. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And then he added, and if I may put it this way, I miss him. <laughs> I miss him. And as he said it, his eyes filled with tears and he wept freely and he refused to say any more. Can I ask you a question today? Where are you with Jesus? Do you miss him? Have you been trying to do too many things on your own strength? Is it time to, to let go and get some help? And when you think about your own life, how would you fill in this blank? God, I need your help with blank. God, I need your help with blank. Maybe you think, God, I need your help with everything. And it's time to give him the reins, you know, if, if that's the case. In a week or so around here, we're going to ha have people be baptized. And, and there's a little card in your program that asks for more information. If that's you, you can communicate with the church and make that decision, take that step, and celebrate next weekend along with many others. Maybe it's time for you to take that step. 
Or maybe you're thinking, God, I need some help with my family. Are you winning at work but losing at home? Having trouble with some toddlers? Been there before. Having some trouble with some teens? Been there too. Having some trouble with some 20-somethings? Encounter that from time to time. Is your marriage growing apart as a result? If so, we would love to pray for you this morning. We'll have a time at the end of our service where we can, we can do that right up front here. Or maybe you think, God, I need some help with my balance sheet. And regarding your finances, you made some mistakes, and now you're, you're in a bad place. Well, River Glen is a family, and we want to pray with you and for you, too. Maybe your situation says, God, I need your help in making some decisions. I mean, I found that either we have just made a big decision or we're thinking about making a big decision. Maybe you have some decisions that are coming up or, or those that have already been made. Have you made some poor choices lately? Need some help getting back on the right track? We would love to pray a a grace-filled prayer for you, asking the Father who runs for help. Admitting your need for help isn't weakness. It's wisdom. Humbling yourself is not humiliating. It's liberating. It frees you to get the one thing you need most, God's love and his grace. Help has a name. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of the father like you, the father who runs from Luke 15. Thanks for the reminders that you will reach out to us. If all we do is start humbling ourselves, you are there to welcome us back. Thanks for the inspiration of a story like that. Thank you for Jesus telling it to people that were far from him, knowing that here's a message of grace. Would you give us the courage to take a step toward you if we have drifted to take another step again? If we've gotten into that sorry cycle that we would come out of it and come toward you? Thank you for your love and hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.